This is Cinema Degeneration. There is a man, alone in the dark with a head full of the unknown. A vault of horrific thoughts hidden from the world. Another stalks him through the shadows. Watching. Waiting. Burning to crack the lock of his skull. Plunge his questing fingers inside and dissect the mysteries within. And tonight, the hunter will spring his trap without warning. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema Degenerations Without Warning. This is a different kind of podcast we do here. This one is done flying by the seat of our pants and the skin of our teeth. It's always going to be, uh, one of us will not know what the other person is going to be getting into. <laughs> but this particular show is just me and my buddy here, Corey Dawson. How are we doing? Doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, flying by the skin of my teeth. I've been up all day, all night. But, you know, the show always must go on. That's true. We put the evil in evil can evil. <laughs> there we go. But uh, th- for those of you who don't know, this is episode number two of Without Warning, in which I surprised Mr. Corey Dawson here late one night with a subject at hand, usually pretend- pertaining to the world of film, but sometimes straying into various areas of pop culture, culture, sorry, <clears throat> various areas of pop culture. And uh, this one, I, I told- only gave you really a hint by uh, telling you that I was cutting it close to the bone today. And... Uh, oh. Yeah, I don't know if you heard that one. Yeah, but that. <laughs> no, I, I, I did. I, I picked. I heard that, but I didn't think that you were dropping little nuggets, man. I'm gonna have to keep my my ears more open and try to figure out what's going on here. But no, I, I've got nothing on that one. Yeah, it's been a couple months since we've done one of these, but uh, it's still the format's not changed. He doesn't have did not have any idea, folks. Mr. Dawson here does not have any idea what the subject is going to be. <laughs> but uh, you feel like you're in the hot seat a little bit, do you? I kind of like yeah, the power. I, I got to admit, I, I like had... the power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it, it's it's something for me. I love it. All right, all right. You ready for me to uh, lay it on you? Here we go. The subject tonight is going to be books and the movies that became them. <laughs> oh, man. Well, shit. Talk about my wheelhouse right here. I'm loving it. <laughs> Yeah, I decided to hit one close to the bone. Uh, that's uh, I know it's near and dear to your heart, but uh, at the same time, you know, it's, uh, I'm going to make you pick some favorites here. I'm going to make make you pick some least favorites. Hopefully, you know, and I uh, have a nice little array of titles here that I want to touch base on, and as I'm sure you will too. I mean, we could talk about talk about some of the big and the bad boys. I mean, we got. I mean, let's throw some big titles out there. We got Dracula, got Frankenstein, oh, yeah. you got yeah. Jaws. Perfect. Exorcist. Yeah. You know, I actually, so, uh, I started listening to, I, I recommend to anyone looking around on YouTube, there is a fine, wonderful reading of The Exorcist by William, or not William, yeah, William Peter Blatty, yeah. So you can have the author, and he's got a really sonorous, deep voice, too, and it's it's a fantastic reading, so... Just look around for that. It's it's everywhere. William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. It's I'll look it up right reading. now. It's chilling as hell. 
uh, listening to, especially since when you get an author reading something they wrote, chances are they've either read it in their head a, a million times, they've read it out loud to someone else, they've listened to it in their head uh, endlessly. So you don't have to worry about any kind of uh, misstep. They totally know how to read their people, and um, it's fantastic. Now, I got to ask, do you read a lot of uh, or listen to a lot of uh, audiobooks? I do. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would say that it doesn't outweigh. It's all circumstantial. Like if I'm I'm taking long, I mean, like the normal stuff, I'm taking a long trip. If I'm walking the dog, if any or washing dishes like that type of thing, if I'm cleaning, I'll listen to a book. I, I always prefer the um, the written word on pages you can turn and stuff like that. But I actually had a conversation with Melanie the other day that I had this weird thing with my brain where if I start reading it in on pages, I can't listen to the audiobook. Like if I, let's say I read 100 pages of a book, but then I'm going to be on the road, I can't listen to that same book in audio form. I don't like it as well. If I, ah, it just depends okay. on where I, okay. where I start. If I start on an audiobook, I prefer to listen to it until the end. But then, you know, six months later, I can read it in a book form. It doesn't, in fact, it might actually enhance it. I might actually hear those voices in my head when I'm reading it. So. Huh. That's weird. I've never thought of it that way. I've never done that, read, yeah. gone back and forth like that. Yeah. Now, do you remember the first audio book you ever listened to? The first time you ever like heard it in that form? Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know if you would count this or not. It actually kind of pertains to what something we were a project we were talking about earlier. But the um, the first thing that I remember listening to in that format. Well, you know what? Actually, I take that back. When I was a kid, I had this library a couple of streets down from me and ended up being my, for basically my, my whole young adult life I spent in the Aurora public library in Aurora, Indiana. And I had this one, I had a couple of things that were overdue for years that they ended up, I had it out for so long that they ended up dropping all the fines, just asking for it back. And then they took <laughs> it off the shelves. It didn't charge me anything. I had had it for so long. The first one was, um, I think his name is Ravenscroft was the the guy who read it and it was a, a record a two disc record vinyl set of all these um ghost stories and horror stories and that was the first place where i think i ever heard a lovecraft story and it had a predominantly like poe on there uh it had uh ambrose beers with like and i think it was a occurrence at owl creek bridge so it had like Robert Louis Stevenson and it had a bunch of really scary uh, stories read on there. And I had that out. I think I might've had that overdue for like seven years. <laughs> and I, I also had a, uh, a cassette tape version of the shadow radio play from the old school um, theater of the mind radio stuff that had the shadow in there. So I would have to say that if I'm actually talking about print stuff, it would have been that those records that had the pit and the pendulum, the, the cask of Amontillado, House of Usher, like all that stuff on there. And the, uh, have you, are you familiar with the, uh, the occurrence of Owl Creek Bridge? No. By Ambrose no. Pierce. It's basically about a Civil War soldier who gets hung or he's about to be hung. And then like this whole adventure takes place. Um, 
as he like kind of makes his escape and stuff. And but there's a horrific aspect to it. That's great. Oh, I think the monkey's paw was on there too. WW w. Jacobs. I think the monkey's paw. So that was a as you can imagine, that was a hell of a record set. So the I monkey's had paw was coincidentally the first uh, stage play I ever remember seeing with my drama club. Oh okay. man, I would have loved to have seen that on stage. That is rock. We've seen that and a couple of other Edgar Allan Poe stories, but the only one I remembered seeing was Monkey's Paw. I was just transfixed by it. It was yeah, done man. so well. Because it's got that moral, there's a moral component to it that's just that rocks. So. Okay, now I've got to ask you, here's this, uh, one, one by question I got for you. You have to make, make a choice. What would you choose? Dracula or Frankenstein? Just across the board? Across the board. What's what's the better book? What, and what's the better movie? Um, I would have to say better movie, Dracula. Better book, Frankenstein. Dracula has a... Dracula is very dry. It has that kind of like that convention of being written in kind of like diary form, which was replicated by King and Carrie, which I've... I'm not a gigantic fan of it, but it still does it well. But I would have to say that Frankenstein, for me, I, I find it um, I find it more enthralling, especially since when you read the book, you find out that the uh, Frankenstein's monster has a lot more going on upstairs than you oh, yeah. see from the films. So, um, but then again, I guess... Also, when you're talking about two of the pedestals, two of the, you know, the columns holding up horror, you would almost have to kind of like make your choice as to which movie you're even referring to. So, like, yeah, that's what because, I was going to say next. You know, where, where we just talk, we can talk the, you know, the Hammer Horror films and we can talk the, you know, the Universal days, you know, new age, old age. I mean, it's like there's so many well, different reiterations of Dracula and Frankenstein out there. When you were just talking about it just now, the Dracula and Frankenstein, cause I thought it would be good to have two that were kind of like in the same ballpark to make this distinction, like with this question. I was thinking Bram Stoker's or Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, those films, the, uh, the Coppola produced and directed films. Yes, yes. So, so uh, in in that case, I, I actually was, really uh, like the that Bram Stoker's Dracula. The Coppola I liked them did. both. I, I was a uh, I was a big 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 fan of that one. I mean, Gary Oldman elevates almost anything. So. And, and probably case, my was, favorite Van Helsing, you know, Anthony yeah, Hopkins would, definitely favorite Van so. Helsing. Ne- next one, no, I can't say that. I got, I got to give that to Peter Cushing, but you know, but I would have to say that one of my favorite Frankenstein films, though, um, altogether. Even though there are very few, like even the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, there's deviations and stuff. Um, I would say that the the one that strikes me almost more than any, any there. It's always difficult for me to say there's just one, but the curse of Frankenstein with Cushing and Lee kind of having those reversed roles, because I'm not so sure that a Frankenstein has been quite as fiendish and as corrupt as the way Peter Cushing portrayed him. 
he's like corrupt to the bone. Hmm. Uh, and I, I ended up liking Curse of Frankenstein far more than I ever expected that I would. I didn't think that anything would kind of squash the, the Boris Karloff iconic uh, stature of Frankenstein. But then when you kind of see this haphazard, lanky, gangly version that Lee did, it was incredibly striking for me. So He seemed gaunt to me. Right, you know, exactly. Yeah, man. It was great. Um, I, I'd say that if I were to say, if I had to say the best representation of Frankenstein when it comes to like visually for me, it's kind of a cheat. Um, it's the Bernie Wrightson Frankenstein series. I think there's a collected uh, Bernie Wrightson Frankenstein where he does all the art. And um, I recommend that to anybody. If you can find the Bernie Wrightson Frankenstein, illustrated Frankenstein anywhere, that's the one you want. Uh, because you can see, you can see his stamp on the the Len Wine, um Swamp Thing. So you can see Frankenstein and Swamp Thing for sure. And then when you see, I'm that actually reaction, looking up Bernie Wrights and Frankenstein as we speak. Oh, it's 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 <laughs> something. It is so sumptuous. Uh, it kind of it reminds me a lot of. Um, the older Poe illustrators like Rackham, Arthur Rackham and stuff, where sometimes there's so much detail that you might see something as a completely different picture the second time or third time than you did the first time. But Wrightson kind of takes that Frazetta muscular anatomical form and brings it out to like the nth degree. It becomes like this Tales from the Cryptian looking type anatomy. It's wonderful. But anyways, um, Dracula, for sure, if, you know, Coppola made it rich and made it sumptuous and made him probably more relatable than any other before or maybe even since. But I think that it's going to be difficult to beat Lugosi, no matter how you slice it. Um, and to think but, he only played Dracula twice. He only played him twice, and and then once was hell where Evan Costello meet Frankenstein, but I thought he was in Dracula's Daughter. Was he in Dracula's Daughter? I didn't believe he was. I could have sworn he was. I thought that he had like this famous bullet hole in his head where you see kind of like those production stills where she's standing there. Or maybe that dra maybe it was um maybe it was called something different. Because Dracula's daughter was that real um, hypnotic. I get Dracula's daughter and another one mixed up where there's a, maybe he wasn't called Dracula. Maybe that was Return of the Vampire. See, I'm thinking of the mixed up into what I get, think of Return of the Vampire and uh, Dracula's daughter. I get those two mixed up. <laughs> because Return of the Vampire had the like Wolfman kind of uh guy what that wasn't right was kind of like the non-wolf man yeah he could speak english and everything i i kind of i really liked that and he only and he only got i remember because he only got uh re resurrected he was he was gone but you know uh, the the wolf man part of him was gone you know until the they burst him out of his crypt fucking bastards that they just left their meddling asses alone <laughs> andreas had been all right yeah so yeah, but I, I think that they're, I think that 
in the future, someday there there will be a definitive Frankenstein and a definitive Dracula. They did do that one Christopher Lee. I think it was like Jess Franco or something, where Dracula had the mustache and the white hair and all that. Oh yeah, kind yeah. Of attempting to be more like the the novel and everything. I do think that the Coppola version, since it played so hard on the um, the trio of friends that never appeared in anything else where it had like the cowboy from America and then kind of like that aristocratic English Lord or whatever. And then it had the doctor. Um, that was something that they didn't stress. And as far as I know, they didn't stress that in any other work than the Coppola Dracula film. So, so that's definitely a point to that movie. I'm looking up Dracula's daughter. Actually, that came out in '36. That did not. Nope, it did not have Bela Lugosi in it. Okay, so there's another one that has... I had to look it up because I was. I, I know it's got uh, uh, Van Helsing, the actor that played him. The name escapes me. Uh, oh, there he is, Edward Van Sloan. That guy, he had like every. He was kind of dialed in for every hero versus the universal monsters that would have been a nice gig where he's like okay i'm gonna be van helsing and then i'm gonna be the guy that shows up at the mummy and then i'm gonna be the guy narrates the opening of uh frankenstein wouldn't he that's one of my favorite uh little i'm sure there's a term for it where like the curtains draw at the beginning of a film like it's almost like the theater yeah that's one of my favorite one of those for sure Okay, so what's next? What's next? Okay, uh, this one, I'm not sure this one's uh, on your radar, but uh, which do you like better, the, the book or the movie? American Psycho. Uh, American Psycho. I would say that, okay, so I definitely have a story about this. I went to Ball State University in 1998, and that was at a time where I kind of had the, you know, I was away from home. You're kind of like, you're in school, so you're already doing a lot of reading for, for work rather than leisure and pleasure and stuff. So I ended up having a lot of time to read with. And I honestly couldn't tell you where I got the copy from, but I had a copy of American Psycho in the original printing. I actually think that it was given to me by a guy that was constantly compared, that I was constantly compared to in high school, and then he got kicked out for some kind of infraction. I think he almost, I think if I remember correctly, he passed his copy on to me as almost some sort of like, I don't even know what, like it was like a torch for him. It was like, yeah, I got kicked out of school and people are constantly comparing you to me. So here's American Psycho. It makes no sense. But um, <laughs> I ended up reading American Psycho and, and I normally don't do this. I'm not the fastest reader that ever came down the pike. Um, I ended up reading American Psycho in one night. Oh damn! Like I've I never, said, I've never read a book in one night. <laughs> Come close. Like I said, it was rare. It was one of those things where I started at like 9:30 p.m. and I was so in, I read until like 6 a.m. and and I've never done this before or since. After I was done and I closed the book, I had to go do something cheerful. After <laughs> it was over, um, I would say that American Psycho is pretty high on um, when it comes to like the flavor 
the tone, the delivery of a book and how that's represented in a film, I would say American Psycho comes pretty damn close because American Psycho in and of itself, Freddie Stanellis was a big stream of consciousness type writer and nowhere uh, was it more exemplified than in American Psycho because if you remember the part in the movie where he's kind of going through his daily beauty routine, yeah. where it's like, you know, I, I apply such and such skin cream and, I, and then I wipe that off with whatever astringent and then I use this oil to make sure I don't peel. And then yeah, and then he's putting on the face mask. So all that stuff is one sentence in that book. In fact, I don't think you even think it has. Uh, I don't think it even has uh, punctuation. It's a stream of consciousness, one after the other, and it's an entire block. It may even be two pages. I can't remember exactly how long it is, but, but it's all one sentence. Yeah, yeah, and that, and in the book, it gives you that manic, obsessed uh, rigidity of his routine, and I think that they. I think they characterized it pretty decently in the film. Um, nothing's perfect. In fact, the film is tame by comparison. I'll say a few words to you uh, as not to give a whole lot away, but just to give you an idea of how tame the movie is by comparison. The book uses words like starved rodents, um, cat food encrusted uh, hamster tube, battery <laughs> clips. Uh, melted fat on the ceiling, things of that nature. So I think the only prop, if you were going to do I think that American Psycho was done justice when it comes See, to that I, That's where I got to admit in my geekdom, I have never read it. I don't um, I know why. I don't know why. I, it's just one that's always just escaped me. And I like think about it at times like this when I don't have a book in front of me. And I'm like, damn. I would say that uh, the it's writing of Red East and Alice's writing, because he came from like a cocaine-fueled era. It was always about the club kids. It was always about the scene. And he wrote from practically every era of his life. So he wrote from high school, would have been Less Than Zero, also made a movie out of that, which was excellent, um, with Robert Downey, actually, an early role of his, and McCarthy, too. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, okay, I do remember seeing that. I do remember seeing that in the 80s. Yeah, and um, I have to say, man, without a shadow of a doubt, the James Vanderbeek Rules of Attraction, that was the college-aged book that he wrote. That was the first Brett Easton Ellis book that I wrote, and that movie fucking kills it. It was so on point. That movie was so on point. Because I think the guy who did Killing Zoe, the uh, the partner of Tarantino. Oh, Roger Avery's. Yeah, yeah. Avery. I think Avery Zoe. did that. And um, God damn, did he ever do a great job. And Vanderbeek is a triumph in that movie. It's kind of a shame that he never really surpassed that for me. But um, yeah, so in fact, um, in the Rules of Attraction film, he actually talks to Patrick Bateman on the phone. There's a scene where he talks to his That's brother. Right, there is. I haven't seen Rules of Attraction in years, but. 
I remember yeah, now. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> so he's actually talking. He's talking to American Psycho on the phone. So that's that was a good bit of uh, pre Marvel Universe uh, crossover there. Little Easter eggs. But um, I think that a lot of people can. In fact, I I recommended a couple of Freddy Snell's books to other people, and you have to be a certain type of reader to deal with it. It's so unsettling that some people misconstrue it as being either boring or tedious. When you read it, you have to remember that you're looking at an obsessed mind when you're reading this stream of consciousness, when it comes to like his routine, his planning, how he tortures and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that the, I think the movie did a great, great job. I wouldn't fault the movie at all. There were some things that are left out. I've changed my mind dramatically on um, books, book to movie kind of like translations and stuff. Way back when I was a lot younger, I used to think that if they didn't translate it completely um, faithfully, word for word, every single scene, every single everything, I would think that it was a, uh, a failure. And I've really changed. I think that you can do like a distillation if you have the tone right, and if you have the flavor and the speed, the pace, uh, the statement, if you can get all that right and maybe cut out some extraneous fat that may, may be faithful to the book, but may not move the story and might cloud someone's, especially now, everyone has like the attention span of a mayfly. So if you can't get them and you can't convince them and you can't inspire them, then it's it's all for nothing. So, I've changed my mind on that. Um, okay. So, anyways, sorry. Yeah. Really, no, no problem. Going. I'm gonna say I get going when it comes to book and movie stuff. <laughs> I knew I knew that one would spark some interest. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And we won't yeah, talk so. about American Psycho two, the the one of the few movies that I've never actually <laughs> been able to finish. One of the few uh, movies that I've never been able to finish. Let's put it this way: um, the first time, the the first and last time I looked at the cover of that, I didn't even know who Mila Kunis was. So that's how long it's been since I've even looked at the cover of that thing. So, next frame. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here, I, here's an interesting question: Stephen King, best movie adaptation. Uh, best movie adaptation. Or let's just say I, most faithful to the book. The biggest problem with Stephen King is that people tend to either pick his doorstoppers to make movies or they tend to pick short stories to make his movies. They never kind of hit them in the mid-range size. So either you're cutting out wide swaths of his story and what's going on or you're inflating it with a bunch of shit that didn't exist. Um so I would say uh, this might be kind of controversial. I think that at pupil might have been his best, the best movie or a uh, story to film uh, because that was novella and it may have been the perfect size. In fact, If you think about it, 
a lot of the ones that have done the best when it comes to book to movie have been the smaller works because um, Misery wasn't a gigantic doorstopper, and that ended up being fantastically done. I think that in that case, when you have Rob Reiner on board and it's a labor of love, apparently Stephen King didn't think that James Caan made the best um, author. I can't remember who yeah, he said. Yeah, he didn't think uh, he made the, the, the best Jack Sheldon. But there's one thing I do have to say about James Caan's performance. There's two things I have to say uh, about Misery. Um, I, don't change, I don't change my first vote, but just a moment on Misery. Um, James Caan may not have been his choice to play that guy, but as far as I can tell, nobody, and I mean nobody, plays tortured like James Caan. Because you think James Caan is kind of like, especially if you've seen The Godfather and different stuff, and pretty much everything he's ever in, he's always like the hardest man in the room in one way or another. Oh, yeah. In this, in this case, he's an absolute whipped puppy for most of that film until he kind of gets his come up, or he uh, sort of turns the tables on her, and uh, the typewriter, for that matter. Yeah. But if you... Um, he shows pain more intensely than any actor I think that I, I can think of off the top of my head right now. I haven't seen Martyrs, but uh, those those ladies might kind of... Oh, you you need to see ma- Martyrs. I you own haven't... it. Just I just haven't had a chance yet. And in fact, now that I think about it, I'm not even sure if I have, like, the hardest version. You know what? I was looking for somebody uh, to cover that on an episode of uh, Takeout Edition, since it's a foreign film. So... Yeah, well, watch it. Get, get on it. I'll see if <laughs> I'll see if I can't. I mean, currently with my family situation, I have to wait until everybody's cleared out. I'll try to find my copy, and then, like I said, I can't remember if I have the NC-17 or the R, and that's important to me. So I'll see what I can find. If I have to go online to do it, I will, and then we'll get going on that. But right, right. Um, apt pupil. If you've never seen Apt Pupil, with Ian um, McKellen. Yeah. Yeah, it is. When it comes to the novella versus that, and also what I was saying about the novella for his films, the novella is, you know, I think that's the perfect size for a movie when it comes to that. Um, because, like, Shawshank is in the same boat. Uh, the Body, same boat. So if you if you look at, like, the, the King movies that critics really go crazy for, it's usually his novella-sized stuff. Um, because, I mean... There's there's things that's left out. There's things that are put in. There are uh, differing opinions, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes someone will remake a movie and they've changed the kind of thesis statement. And sometimes it's a tragedy. And sometimes it get, makes you see it from another perspective. I would say that Stand By Me is uh, dead on the money. But that's kind of like people say that Stephen King's wheelhouse is, you know, the frights and stuff. I think that his wheelhouse is more um, children finding out what evil is. So per- when you, perfect example of that to me was one at least that was, you know, a staple back in my day was uh, Silver Bullet, which was a, oh yeah, yeah Silver Bullet yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean I that's interesting that you bring that up. I remember uh, I almost said renting. I get in so much trouble for saying renting with the like the librarians that I know. <laughs> you're not renting anything. You're gonna rent something, rent a movie. I was like, you can't rent a movie anymore. Then they're like, fuck you. But um, 
<laughs> when you pay for a temporary copy of it, when you play, you know, that's pretty much like renting, and that that's still considered. Yeah, I mean, you, you you gotta you gotta give it to me, but yeah, <laughs> um, I. Uh, but the idea I, of renting something, nobody get rents and gets a physical DVD anymore. That's not that's that just not what a, oh my god. I remember it so vividly too. But but I mean even like VHS, but that's how old I am. Um, oh yes. I remember my first well, VHS. I oh Jesus. Yeah, anyway. Sorry, that that's we'll go off in a whole different direction with that, but um holy shit, I can't remember where I was going with that. Oh, at pupil. App pupil. So, um, with the with the children finding fear and stuff, that's actually that's that's where he lives. And I think that app pupil, in a lot of ways, is sort of like his um, his re re up of his of book Rage, which um, I think it's yeah. Rage was the the Bachman book that he ended up taking off the shelves because it had to do with the school shooting. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, as never, far as I know, they never made a, a film of it. He he wanted to kind of expunge it, which to me, um, I kind of disagreed. I mean, I guess if you're in the public eye as much as he is, and you've been uh, raked over the coals so often for your uh, subject matter and stuff, maybe he just saw it as a battle. He would rather kind of be the better, you know, take the high road and get rid of it. But um, I think that App Pupil may have been sort of like his re-up of that idea. And in this case, making um, making the killer like the kid that you think is going to be the golden boy, all that stuff. So, yeah, I would say um, King is tough. There's so much of his uh, stuff that I would like to see. Um, one strange one that I don't want to leave out that I, I don't think it gets... I think that lately it's beginning a little more attention yeah. is the um, is the Jose Ferrar Night Flyer TV film. I think yeah, that's this, a, st- this started um, um, it started uh, Miguel Ferrer. I'm sorry, I said Jose. That's his dad. Uh, yeah, Miguel Ferrar. Um, I I love that version. They could not have found a better guy to play Rick Dees and. Um, I've actually seen Rick, that. Uh, I actually own a, uh, one of the old flip box style uh, DVDs of it. I got it at a disc replay. I found it just right, purely by accident one day. Yeah, it's worth it, man. One thing that I um, that if I was Stephen King, because I guess that Stephen King kind of goes around and sometimes he'll be like, "Man, nobody can make a goddamn good movie of my stuff," and then all of a sudden somebody will make a movie of his stuff, and he won't think it's the best thing ever. But sometimes they'll improve on his work. And like in The Mist, for instance, um, The Mist is pretty damn close, too. In fact, like now that we're talking about this, I was actually thinking in the back of my head. I was like, oh, man, I wonder wonder if he's going to marry Stephen King with this because there's so many stinkers. But I think uh, now that we've been talking about like this, I think there's a lot more good than ill when it comes to, to movies being made of his stuff. If you really look hard because... Um, the Mist was a great one, and when the when Mist, the, strangely enough, to bring it around even more for polar uh, circle, was the first audio book that I ever read. Uh, and that's uh, that's interesting as or, well. Or, or, I, I, I always say ever read, but I but I ever listened to. Um, you know there there's a big um, debate about the listen to 
versus reading or uh, listen to versus reading of an audiobook. And I heard someone say, hey, you know, when you're reading a book, you hear it in your mind. What's the difference? I say read the audiobook. Even though, like, you would think that me, of all people, like the print man, you think I'd be like, ah, what the fuck? These Philistines talking about nothing. No, hey, no, I, <laughs> I, I agree. As soon, as soon as someone put it to me that way, and it was actually someone in an article or somebody talking, and I agree with that. Since when you're reading, you're hearing in, in your head, the audiobook just kind of, it does the same thing. It just kind of, like, skips a step. So I see that as reading, and it's easier. You don't have to stumble around trying to find the uh, the proper way of saying it. I would just say read an audiobook. But <clears throat> I had this missed. You may have had the same one. And I was actually was it the box set? Of, no, no. It was. Yeah, I, it had, was I had a, a box set that had a, a that had like a radio drama, like a full audio radio drama. And then oh. I had I had the book book on tape. Basically, it was on audio cassette. That's how old that's that how old be, I am. Hey man, that would be the way you'd want it because the one that I had, the first thing that occurred to me when I saw it was I was like, wait, the mist is on one tape. And I was like, <laughs> what the hell is this? And it was an audio. It was like a multi actor audio drama with like some kind of special sound effects happening. Yeah, and was I'm, it about 30 minutes long, 25, 30 minutes long? Probably something like that. And I remember thinking, this can't be everything to this. But, um, yeah, like, I, uh, I'm i actually kind of surprised uh, at myself because I thought I was going to go in guns blazing, but there actually, there are a lot of good uh, representations of King now that I think about it. I think that the ones that people normally think of are the ones that I'm not going to mention because um, even though I love me some Carrie, I think that there are there are actually some things from the book that get short shrift that would have um, given it a little more depth. Even though it's a bona fide classic, I mean, there's no way you you can't discount Carrie uh, in the film anyway. I've never read Carrie the book, so I can't really comment about. What was, you know, what I, I remember reading Carrie the book. I was 14. I, you know, remember, I, I don't remember a whole lot about that time. I remember reading uh, Carrie and Christine back to back. Like I just like dove head, head first in. Christine is a weird one, man. Like that's probably like in the, in that, the history of King book to movie. That's probably got the weirdest history of all of them. As far as I know, I think that like the movie was in production before he even finished the film or finished the book. Yeah, I think they were going off his story, just off his storyline. Yeah, and the book ended up being vastly different and uh, and leaving out like a, a major piece of like the haunting and all that stuff. So I don't think that's that's one well, that you left, kinda... it, it left out. Did you? Well, you never read it, or you did. Um, I actually just, uh, this is really weird. I've got it in my possession in the, right next to me. I had started reading Christine for the first time last week.
to be honest, I think that he may have also, when I was saying that like app pupil re-upped uh, the rage book, I think that um, Christine re-upped the character Blaze that he ended up um, releasing that Trump novel later on, Blaze, um, that he had had laying around, and it was kind of like a, of mice and men. Um, I, he I, he would probably say ripoff. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say it's an homage. Um, when it comes to ripoff versus homage, I, I'm uh, I got I got knives on that because it's horrible, especially nowadays. Um, I think there are some people who sort of take a cue from a, a culture that they're not part of and say that he's like, oh man, you know, you sample a piece of music and you put it behind something and you can make something new. So this is just me taking you know this this famous iconic thing and you know i'm just kind of i'm i'm reimagining it um i would love for there to be a pyre for the and just have everyone who's ever uh put the green light to a reimagining of something and just burned their ashes on that thing (laughs) but because fucking like you know man you know I mean, I guess that I was, I was about to say, you know that somebody's going to come along and say, oh, it's just a reimagining of Night of the Creeps. And I was like, uh, Slither, bitch. Already happened. <laughs> right. However, Slither is a fucking triumph. Love that movie. Uh, I love but, Slither, uh, but it is, a, it is a little bit Night of the Creeps, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I think that Night of the Creeps, it, it had uh, so much more of sort of like that 50s sensibility. That was, a, uh, that was definitely one that... Uh, that had its its tongue and its cheek, but also had like its hand on his heart. Like that's that's definitely one that uh, Fred Decker he had a, a love story going there. But uh, I hope I answered your question with Stephen King. It just so happened that I thought there was yeah be that one many I, more. <laughs> I, I thought of a few that I that I really liked. Um, but I think right. that I think it's safe to say that the novella is the best place for uh, for. I love Pet Cemetery, but there's like a lot that's missing. Um, I love Cujo, but there's a lot that's missing. So there, you know, when you uh, when you boil them down, it's kind of better to have that medium range work. That way, you're not uh, you're not putting more clay on it, and you're not cutting it down, you know, to the bone. So there you go. All right, quick Stephen King question: Most wanted uh, story you'd want to see that turned into a movie that hasn't been made yet um i would say uh, that's a def that's that's a tough one because i would say that over time in one way or another because he was doing those dollar babies as well where he's still young- doing that okay i didn't think he was still doing it anymore but yeah um, I-, I think so um i think i don't want to speak out of turn because i haven't seen the new creep show series yet and I've heard, I think I've heard that they're doing some of the ones that I was going to mention on that. Like I was going to say, um, I think it was called Gray Matter. It's yeah. about like the guy who gets the bad beer and like the yeah. kid walks into the general store. I've se- uh, they did do it season one of the creep sh- uh, season okay, one of the creep so, show. Uh, so I guess I can't uh, use that one. Um, and the one I had pick, I just realized as soon as I had written it down that it doesn't uh, count as a pick because they did it on season two of Creep Show. Now that I think about it, <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah, this one." I'm like, "Wait, they did that as a cartoon, <laughs> as a cartoon." 
but uh, survivor type. Well, I was going to say survivor type, and then I remembered hearing something uh, here or there about that. Um, But I don't know. There are a lot of people who have other things to say about that. But I guess I'm hard on Stephen King because, god damn, does he ever do some... I honestly think that when he is lean and mean um, is when he is at his absolute best. I love me some Thinner so much. God damn. Yeah, Thinner, thinner is good. It's so great. Thinner is so great as a book. And actually, to call it a book is almost a stretch. It's not. It's not a long Stephen King book. And um, the audio, the audio book is great too. There was one that was Joe Mantegna. Man, it was great. Um, um, but the the stories, I think that I would like to see. Uh, this is a little bit of a cheat because so many of his damn stories have been done now. That what's coming to me is stuff that could be done better. I might think of one later on, but I can't help but think I would love to see Langoliers done slightly better. Even yeah. though I, I do love the Langoliers, though. Bronson Pinchot losing his fucking mind was just great. Um, but he was just playing his character from True Romance, and there again. Oh, uh, that's true. If maybe so, I guess it could be said that maybe the character that you see in uh, in the Langoliers is what happened to that guy. If he hadn't got caught up in the shootout, you know, <laughs> I'll have to like, um, oh my God. If you could see like the stuff that's scrolling through my head right now. Yeah. Uh, I, think that, I think that all the ones that I'm thinking of right now have been done in some kind of haphazard way. Um, so yeah, I, I think that the Langoliers, but then again, I think that might be a, a a novella too. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait! No, no, dude, no, no! I just thought of it. I just thought of it. The one that I would like to see is the breathing method. Yes, for sure, the breathing mm -hmm. method. That's the one. That's ah, the. I feel like I've read novel. it, but I don't, rec I don't recall. If that's I the novella not. that hasn't been made out of the um out of the four. I think it's in different seasons where they've made the body, they've made at pupil, and they've made um. Uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. So they've made three out of the four of those. As far as I know, they haven't done the breathing method, and that's the one I would like to see because that's the one that kind of invokes ghost story from Peter Straub the most, and those two are like best buds. So I think that that may have been his his run at a ghost story type of story, except in a smaller form. The breathing method is a great. In fact, I would like it if they took the breathing method and they just had a Stephen King show called The Club. Because the breathing method is basically one story of the club. 
So if they made more stories of the club and they just had the club be kind of like the backbone around which the show rotates or revolves or whatever. I follow. Yep. That's what I would like to see. That one. I'm so I'm glad I thought of it. All right. Good choice. Okay. All right. Well, enough, enough about Stephen King. We're going to get on the next author subject here. Uh, Clive Barker, favorite story and why? Favorite story, Clive Barker. Um, I would have to say that's actually a very tough one because I love, I think that's where his, uh, his power lies is in his short stories. I think that his larger works like the great and secret show and like Imajika and different things like that. I think that they're very lush and they're, they're wonderful, very fantastical, but I'd say his powers in his short stuff. I used to read the inhuman condition and in the flesh pretty much cover to cover uh, a few times a year. I only got the books of blood later. I would have to say that, the, the problem with his stuff is sometimes I forget the names of them. There's one, I, th- I thought that it was In the Flesh, but there was one where... There is one called in the, in the Flesh. But I just can't remember this is the one. There was one where uh, there was a character that kept this string in his pocket, and each knot that he untied released something released some magic or Wait, released a creature. Yeah, released a, yeah, a creature. I remember it vaguely because I read it about the same time that I read the Books of Blood, and sometimes I forget which stories are in which collection. I think that if I remember correctly, I think that In Human Condition and In the Flesh are considered like, I don't know if it's supposed to be like the fourth and the fifth, or if they collect, or if it's the first and the second, and then there's a third and it's called something else, and then there are two books of blood after that. I honestly can't remember because I got them all out of order. Like, since we're Americans, we ended up kind of getting what whatever was shuffled our way and re renamed and stuff like that. I think I have books of blood part three in its original uh, UK version with the Barker illustrations on the front and stuff. Which that's like the only way if you can get those. That's I Almost had them always. a long, long time ago, but I lost most of my books growing up. Horrible. Oh, I had, horrible. I had yeah, to rebuild I, my my collection over many a year, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Forbidden because I love the story, the Forbidden, and I love the movie Candyman. So I think that when it was a much different animal when it got to Candyman. Uh, but I loved the stories. There are very few of, of Clyde Barker's stories that I didn't enjoy. Um, later on, the later it got, uh, the worse it got. I think that um, much like Jonathan Davis, much like Trent Reznor, I mean, at some point, the guys end up uh, finding happiness. So when that happens, uh, sometimes the work suffers. <laughs> I know, I know. Like I, I've said this before, 
Um, it seems like I had a gigantic conversation with somebody about this. It may have been on a message board or something. But I'm on a message board. Does anyone even say that anymore? But you know what I'm saying. Um, How old are we? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I say websites and URL. It's like you are fucked. But I like I um, start with the whole www and like the people <laughs> look at me like, uh, yeah, I just went there. I just went there. Fuck. So, Back before so we on. had. Back before we had machines correcting us, motherfucker. Anyways, right, but right, uh, right. but um, as far as I'm concerned, especially when you see the level of gratuitous gore in the film, in the I'm I'm tempted to call it a film because when you when you read the Scarlet Gospels, it seems like one of those horrifically uh, I'm not going to say tone deaf, but almost like um, blind to the work blind to the previous work sequels that uh, they just tacked the yeah. razor name on the scarlet gospels after a certain point it just degrades into that but when you anyone that kind of comes to me is like hey what do you think of clive barker i've got a lot of good stuff to say and i just say you know anything past a certain point you you have to tread lightly but when it comes to the early short stuff when it comes to Wee World, when you're messing around with Cabal, uh, Wee World. Now that was one of my favorites. Um, I I think that Cabal was done pretty decent justice with Nightbreed. Um, as when it comes to like, if you're gonna redo Clyde Barker's work, like I honestly think that would be a great place for a uh, Spectre Vision to go. I think they're doing a great job with the Lovecraft stuff they're trying right now. I would love to see them take on Clyde Barker material. Um, night or not night gallery, but um, tells from the dark side did the yattering and Jack one time, and it was laughable, but I liked it that they even took it on at all. And I love the yattering and Jack, that's a great story, all over, all over. It's difficult to find a story in those early, early collections that I don't like, but um, there was one that had to do with sort of um. I feel bad that I can't remember the names of them, but I remember the story. I mean, maybe that's a testament when you remember the story and not the name. I'm sure that there's, I'm sure there's a psychological uh, compliment happening there if you can remember the story but not the name. I would, I would love to talk to him about that little uh, uh, occurrence, you know, because there was one where the guy goes to the bathhouse and it ends up being kind of like there are gods that are living there. Yeah, and there's a real kind of like psychosexual, like human versus god, like merging flesh, all that kind of stuff. Maybe that was in the flesh. I can't remember. I get some of them mixed but, up to me. The short yeah. stories, do, the short stories do after a while. And I would, um, but I do no. want to say one thing right off the bat is that just because you can't remember the names doesn't mean that the stories are all uh, homogenous. Even though it's Clyde Barker's voice, man, is he singing different songs every time. He There's a definite flavor to what he's got going, but there's very... I think that may have been one of kind of like the hallmarks of some of his later stuff, where when you come up with as many surprises as he did, at some point you're going to run into a cliche um, later on in your work. So, um, yeah, I love me... Anything out of those collections and the Hellbound Heart, that, that's a novella that if you're if you want to if you want to get into like the Hellraiser stuff, 
that is a place where you find that's where sort of that's where that tone that tone was born. It's, it's yeah, different. that was the genesis of uh, what later became become became things like Hellraiser Revelations and uh, Hell, Hellraiser Debtor and and. Ugh. Ugh. I mean, I would love it. I would love it if they just came out with a movie called The Hellbound Heart. And they I, did. I was going to say the same thing, sir. I was going to say the same thing and just do it as a straight adaptation. And, and they, do the jeweled, they do the jeweled pin version. Of, yep. I mean, I'm not even, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not even satisfied with him calling him the hell priest. Um, I think that once something has become, I think he ought to embrace that pinhead moniker. I don't think that you need to throw that away. I mean, if he didn't name him before and he just kind of tacked on, because I mean, I guess that in his estimation, they were sort of like nameless and faceless, but that's kind of silly when you have something that's so uh, in the book, they're distinctive. You've got differences. So if you didn't, uh, if you didn't give the, the guy a name, and then you direct the film that has that representation in there. Just go with that, especially if it because that character being named by your reader or not necessarily your readers, but your readers kind of like in viewing form as your audience. I think you need to embrace that. I think that throwing it away and just kind of calling them hell priests is kind of silly, especially like. Well, and there's later. always been a, a distinct difference for me too from Clyde Barker, the the filmmaker, and Clyde Barker, the the author because they're two completely different animals. Yeah. You know, and like it's when, interesting that, you know, when he, I think he did like some stage stuff when he was in college and everything, but what were you saying? I was going to say even like the early, early stuff that he directed, the short films, uh, Sloam and the Forbidden, you know, very, very, uh, archaic <laughs> filmmaking, psychotronic gonzo type filmmaking. He was just, you know, you know, when he was starting out, in those days, <laughs> I think it was him uh, and even Doug Bradley was in a couple of those and, you know, would become the Hell Priest or Pinhead. I do think calling him uh, Hell Priest is kind of... It just seems not, cheap. Like it, if you're, it's not embracing it. Especially if, like, you tell me an author who can come up with cooler names than Clive Barker can. He comes up with the coolest names in his stories. Just to call him Hell Priest, it just, it seems to me, that's like throwing, like wiping your hands on a napkin and not even trying to hit the bowl with it. Like, that's just silly, and as far as I'm concerned. You can have different movements to your work. I think that there's a lot of stuff that's been explored in the, in the comic book series. Uh, but I've, I guess that one, one thing that the later sequels did was to sort of equate pinhead with the devil and equate them with evil or like hate or stuff like that. When that was never what it was about. And I think that the first two films really exemplify that where those guys aren't necessarily even villains in those movies. They're giving you what you asked for. So they're like, like that whole like angels to some thing. Yeah, de uh, demons to others. 
they're giving you what you want. Yeah. They're giving you what you asked for. They're not giving you anything you didn't ask for. So uh, you just got to be careful that, about what you ask for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like throughout time, like the Faustian bargain. So I think that just writing them off as these, and even three started to go there when he was sort of like making a mockery of Jesus and stuff, like laughing about it. That's like, that guy doesn't know Jesus. Like that's, they're way beyond, they're on a completely different material plane. So, and I think that people get confused when they use the term hell in those movies. I think hell is just sort of this blanket term for um, the pain. You're not being punished for wrongdoing. You're being, you want to be punished. You want to have your, your flesh transcended by this stuff. It's not a, uh, there's no blame. There's no hate and there's no evil. It's like this, you want to go beyond, but going beyond hurts. So yeah, man, like, yeah, I could go on forever about how they've <laughs> messed up, how they've kind of messed up the, uh, the thesis statement of that whole idea. Well, what they ended but, up turning the Hellraiser series into pretty much after the, I mean, I got to admit, I love the first three. I mean, I, I love the first two. The third one has not aged well over time for me, but I, I still like it. don't love it. I like it. And the others are just varying degree of, eh, to be honest. I think that for me, uh, and this, this could be like a point of contention. I'm not sure. For me, it's one and two, almost neck and neck. I yeah. love number two so much. They make a perfect double feature. One. Oh, absolutely. I love that two uh, VHS, that big old clunker set they had. I love that. Um, but then after that, for me, it's Bloodline. I thought out of all the sequels that came after it, Bloodline is the one that interested me the most, and I would love one day to see an uncut version where Angelique kind of got her full story. I don't know if it exists, but I, I loved, even though there was some silliness happening, uh, I loved getting into Le Marchand and sort of like the whole toy maker aspect to it. Um, it's almost like a more evil Andre Toulon. Yeah. Oh man. You know what? That never even occurred to me, but totally. I totally get that. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's Andre so, Toulon just with the different aspirations. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, like, in, in my mind, there are Barker stories that come to mind. Uh, Son of Soloid is always that, one that I, uh, I've always held dear. I always liked that one. Son of Celluloid is one of the ones that I remember the least. I remember the one that happens in the prison with like the Potter's Field and uh, the knotted string and the bathhouse and the forbidden. Uh, I mean, the book of blood. I mean, I guess that that's that's kind of where it all began, I guess. But uh, but that was later. Like I I didn't have some of that stuff until later. So, yeah, I did, sorry, I can't remember names, but you know what I'm talking about. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. All right, next next one, next one. 
This is a big one for me because I know what my answer is. I'll be curious to see what your answer is. And uh, it's uh, I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. Which film version got it the best? I, I'll go ahead and we'll go with this one first myself. I, I personally, even though it's as far from the book as possible, but it's still my favorite version because it was the first one I ever watched, was The Omega Man. Uh, I, I, with the way you described that, I knew that's the one you were talking about. <laughs> I love, I love the Omega Man so much because, um, despite, see, I can, I can kind of take the artist out of their, um, their everything else. If I see an artist doing their thing, I'm not going to attach their political leanings. I'm not going to attach any past transgressions. I'm not going to attach any future transgressions. It's all going to be about the artist and their art. Maybe it's a problematic view. Maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense 21st century. Maybe it makes me blind and deaf and dumb. Not sure. But when it comes to Charlton Heston, despite the NRA jazz, I could watch Charlton Heston in anything. I love the Omega Man with my whole heart. It's not the most faithful. If we're talking about best representation, which that's what it sounds like to me, it's got to be Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price so far. Yeah. Um, because it, it has um, it has all the bleakness of the solitude of the character dealing with this. He's basically kind of like the custodian of the future. It's where he's like, okay, well, this vampire plague has taken over. I had a small hand in kind of like the situation surrounding it. My best friend is now my most uh, dire enemy. And I got to hear him wailing into the night as I'm using a lathe to like carve steak after steak after steak after steak. And I'm talking to myself. I'm listening to records in the night getting drunk. Like there are a lot of um, when you look at I Am Legend and you look at Omega Man and you look at The Last Man on Earth. Last Man on Earth is almost dead on target. Almost. But it leaves out some of the stuff that the Omega Man has. And right. Omega Man leaves out some of the stuff that I Am Legend has. If you were to take a crazy quilt of, you know, if you took like 85% of Last Man on Earth and you added 10% of Omega Man and 5% of I Am Legend, you'd almost have it. Because there are... Um, there are parts in I Am Legend that they couldn't replicate uh, when Last Man on Earth was made. And I think it's kind of a shame that The Last Man on Earth has been relegated to sort of like one of the pieces of a double feature of some half-assed Dollar Tree DVD compilation. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, It ends up on, on a lot of Dollar Bins DVDs, I notice. You see them at Dollar Tree all the time. It's a major it's, it's a major shame. It's a major shame because and, I think it's the closest one. And you can't find a Mega Man anywhere. You can't barely find a Mega Which Man. Which is also that's a damn shame because even though I think that, that I think Omega Man, if you can have such a thing, might be a testament to how you can take a story that exists, tweak it for its era, and somehow give it like such a unique flavor. And somehow get a point across that you couldn't do 
in earlier work and it turns out like in later work you don't quite nail it either when it when that like that sort of like um or i guess uh, okay let me put this a different way they didn't quite nail it they took it and they twisted it and so far as far as i can tell i don't think any of the three actually had the legend portion i think omega man had the closest one to the whole idea of i am legend i think that the I idea see that. i think the idea was presented in the last man on earth where you find out like who the real monster is at the end of the day but i don't think they didn't quite stick to landing on that and then when you had when you kind of like twist it around and make it a messiah thing instead and the omega man you're kind of it's almost as if like you're looking at the answer from the wrong side of the binoculars so you get you get this weird it's there you're just not seeing it from the right perspective so but beyond all that uh i love it might be too much to say i love the will smith version but i like so heavily so many parts of it and there were parts uh that really tore my guts apart so i can't discount it either um so i would i would just say you know the answer to your question last man on earth is the closest okay. one yet I would love to see uh, it just kind of dawned on me how fun it would be to see like an Omega Man uh, animated film done by like the people who do like Archer or that'd be interesting. Yeah, that that would be fun. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Okay. Yeah, it does. On, <laughs> like I said, on several levels. All right. Next question is more general is uh what book are you reading right now if any right now in thief take by db i can't remember the last name uh you got to be careful though like for some reason there are like eight books called thief taker i'm not sure exactly why but basically it's a book about um during i think it's pre post-colonial pre-revolutionary war uh massachusetts and <clears throat> there are there's an occupation called thief taker where you're pretty much a private detective you're just trying to find like lost objects lost wealth and the uh the character that you're following is one of these out of two in the city where he's kind of like competing with um a more mob-like contingent, but he has a an advantage, which is he employs sorcery to find uh, the thieves. And it doesn't overplay that hand. Uh, it doesn't kind of, so far anyway, it doesn't delve so much into the fantastical that- And who, who wrote this? Who, who's the author? Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's D.B. something. I'll look it up, it might I'll be find it. D.B. Mitchell or something. Is it, uh, 
DB Jackson. I believe so. There's like kind of a guy with like a tri-corner hat looking down. It's sort of like a sepia tone. I think he's looking down on like a dead body. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very colonial looking. Right. Um, I just I just finished one called the Suicide Motor Club. Suicide that Motor one. Club. I'm going to write that one oh, down. I'm writing down all oh, the ones dude. you're mentioning. Uh, why don't you go in? Because you just started talking about Mr. Begone when we cut out. Well, I'm about oh, 55, 60 pages into it. Actually, oh, no. I'll, I'll take a look right now. I am on page 84. It's done from uh, the point of view of the demon as it's uh, ascent from kind of basically hell uh, to the the middle ages you know it's just kind of like his adventures told from his point of view constantly telling the 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 reader it starts off basically saying don't read this book put this the whole first chapter is three or four paragraphs of saying don't read this book put this book down are you fucking crazy don't read this book i'm the one telling you the the book i'm a demon it's going to, you know, the, just reading this is going to be the destruction of your very soul. Put it away. Second chapter starts out the same way. Didn't I tell you to stop reading this book? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And it's just like, okay, well, I'll tell you one story. I'll give you one story, then you'll be done with me. You know, and he goes and tells one horrible story about being, you know, ridiculed and bullied by other demons and then him taking revenge on said demons and it basically sounds like you know you're like it's almost like a demon res- describing adolescence that's fantastic <laughs> and that, man and that's as far as i'm uh, as i'm into it right now I, I think he's on an escape to get the hell out get the well to get the hell out of hell i think that's where okay. it's going um that reminds me a lot of the screw tape letters which I recommend to anyone. Um, C.S. Lewis was a strange guy. He was a strange guy. He wrote uh, science fiction. He was like a Catholic apologist. I think he was, yeah, I think it was Catholic apologist. He hung with Tolkien. He was part of like the Inklings writing group. Um, He wrote science fiction. He wrote the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And he also wrote the screw tape letters, which is a one-sided conversation with an elder demon talking to a lesser demon. I think it's his nephew. Screw tape is the older demon, and Wormwood is the younger demon. And you see, you don't hear Wormwood's initial letter, you just hear Screw Tape's response. And it ends up being this incredibly satirical sort of like send up of religion, Christianity, Catholicism, um, social ills, hypocrisy in and of itself. It's awesome. It's totally wonderful. And uh, I've read the book itself and I've heard John Cleese read it as well, which I totally recommend. I totally recommend his reading of it because it's basically Wormwood. It would, it's almost as if, you have, this is John Cleese reading the screw tape letters, you said? Yeah, that's that's one of the best readings of it there is. Um, because it's kind of, it would almost be like an elder executive talking to a junior executive about what, how he's doing the wrong, he's doing his job all wrong. And in that kind of like dressing down of Wormwood, it totally um, 
casts humanity in this really hip, uh, hypocritical light and real, how petty we are and how stupid we are as a species and how uh, self-destructive we are. <laughs> yeah, and basically sort of like the faults of religion in and of itself, too. Screwtape Letters is excellent. It kind of reminds me, when you're talking about Mr. Be Gone, it sort of sounds like the, the certain parts of the Inferno where the demons are sort of bickering amongst each other. It sounds like that part of that, of the Inferno, and Mr. Begone and Screwtape Letters all, all deserve to be in the same canon. I think that that's... That sounds wonderful yeah. to me. I didn't know what it was about. It kind of... I sort of shied away from it because sort of like the title itself seemed a little too flippant for Clive Barker. So I, yeah, I kind of sh I shied away from it. But now that you're describing it, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, that's how I looked upon it for a couple of years. I found it at a, you know, at a used book sale you know, for, I think, a dollar. And I'm like, well, well, what the hell? I'm like, you know. That's I'm, worth I'm, it. I'm like, that, that's, that alone it just is worth this weight in gold. <laughs> and especially but, if you got a hardback, it's, pretty, it's a pretty cool looking edition, too. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I'm reading now, and I, I highly, highly recommend that one. The last thing I was reading uh, was Stephen King, The Wastelands. I, I was revisiting the Dark Tower saga. Since oh, I, I, had, I, I hadn't read the last two books, and I thought to myself, it had been so many years since I had read the previous, like I ended with Wolves Akala. So I, I was like, eh, I'm just going to start over. I'm just going to start over, and I got Patty into them. I got her into them, and she... Just finished the last novel, so that tells you how fast I read versus how fast she reads. But hey, you know that's uh, that people are like I. A lot of people just kind of take it for granted that I just eat books up and just like cast them aside, like you know, like skin and bones and stuff. And that's not quite true. It all depends on the book. It all depends on the mood. It all depends on the interest. Like sometimes there are books that I have a dictionary handy because. I don't necessarily know what all the words mean. That's how I felt like when I was re uh, reading Clockwork Orange. Well, I mean, that makes sense, because you got to have that glossary. <laughs> you know? uh, so, with a Clockwork Orange, did you read the um, did you read the truncated version, or did you read the uh, version with the original ending? You know, I don't think I had the original ending. I think I re read the edited version. I think that's one of those rare occasions where I prefer the edited version. I was 17 or 18 when I read that. Because there's kind of a, like a redemptive thing that occurs. And I think that uh, that's one of those stories where I, I don't find redemption necessary after everything that's happened. So I, um, yeah, but I, I love that too. I've Anthony Burgess had another one called the wanting seed. That was really great. But it's it's kind of it's another if I remember correctly it's another kind of like socio political apocalypse of technology and uh, loss of identity and stuff I can't remember exactly what it I I thought that the wanting seed has something to do with like overpopulation but I could be wrong. Oh, okay, here's here's the next the next section of questions. Got a couple more, and I'll let you go for the evening, so you can go about your merry way. Uh, 
uh, right. most recommended uh, underrated book. Mm. Something you would recommend to somebody that's not that's off the beaten track. Yeah, um, that one I was talking about, uh, Suicide Motor Club, by uh, Buhlman. Wait, he did, he wrote. Uh, now I just realized, not to interrupt. Thomas Berger wrote Neighbors. Yes, he did. That the the Neighbors film with uh, Dan Aykroyd and uh, uh, John. But it ended. John it, it ended. It ended much differently, and yeah, because uh, yeah, then, uh, then uh, Earl die of a heart attack. Um, he definitely doesn't make it out. He definitely doesn't make it out clicking his heels together. I can't remember exactly how he goes out, but um, but Christopher Buhlman, he wrote a book that I covered on uh, the Diabolical Index a couple years ago, or maybe a few, called Those Across the River, and that's that's a book that basically, you know, uh, I'm voracious. You mean uh, you should you should know this. I'm so voracious when it comes to buying books. I'm much more patient when it comes to reading books than I am about buying them. Um, I'm the same way so with books I, as I as I am about movies. I, I I buy them in bulk and then I. I always just chip away at them, and the, the 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 to watch and to read pile is always much uh, bigger than the finished pile. Always, which always. is you know someone someone told me one time that it's going to lead to my immortality. She said that I was searching for immortality because I wouldn't allow myself to die until I read all the books I had, but I'm continuously buying them. So she said that I'm this uh, you're cheating the system. Vampire. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like the Highlander, except you know. It has to do with books instead of swords. But um, we'll see if that pans out. Um, okay. Report back to us. Let us know. Let yeah. Us know. But right. I ended up getting a, a lot of books uh, from eBay. And those across the river ended up being in it. And I was, and all I could, and this is definitely, it's definitely a exam, an example of, I love it so much when the cover is demure. Because... I looked at this book and you look at the cover and it gives you nothing. Even like the, the inside description of what's happening, it gives you nothing except for maybe a little bit of like intrigue about what might be going on. And I read those across the river and I was fucking blown away by how visceral the scares were in that book. So I was like, what the fuck? I'm looking around for... So I basically went around buying everything that guy wrote that I could find. And he's a uh, he's a Renaissance Festival type guy. And he's like a poet. I think he's one of those guys that walks around the festival like insulting people for money. I'm sure there's a, <laughs> a name for that. Wait, um, and who is this? Christopher Buhlman. Buhlman. I think oh, okay. it's like B-E-U-H-L-M-N. I think something like that. Uh, I'm a job like that. Pay me to insult you for money. I mean, I know that it exists at the one in Ohio, where you can pay a guy and he'll just walk up to insult your friends like for five ten minutes or something. But the the thing that irritated the living hell out of me when it came to those uh, across the river was the hardback. Like I said, it has this really demure cover, and you get this kind of bare bones description of what's happening. And you read it, and it blindsides the living hell out of you. 
there are a couple of parts in that novel. I think that was his debut novel, I believe. Which one? Uh, Those Across the River. Those Across the River. And it's funny, I, I get on these tangents. That wasn't even the book I was going to talk about. But yeah, I think that's it was his debut. And man, there are scenes in that book. And this was before I even had a son. There were scenes in that book that had to do with children where Stephen King wishes, wishes he could have applied as much dread to one of the children in that book as Christopher Buhlman did. What pissed me off to no end was when I saw the paperback release of it, no. they gave the whole fucking show away. Like the, if you were to look, it's kind of like uh, the, movie, the, the movie trailer that shows you everything in the, in the movie trailer. So you don't need to see the movie. Well, I mean, I, I think that it even did worse than that, where you see this book and it's kind of, you know, it's got like a green cover and you see it, if I remember correctly, it, it's like, you see a green cover and it's got like a tree or something or like a representation of a tree and like the title and it could easily just as well be just some sort of like middle-aged drama of some guy moving to the woods after the horse. Like you don't see it. The cover doesn't give you a damn thing. And then you see it would honestly dead seriously. It would be as if someone said, okay, well let's give this movie two posters. Let's make one that looks like the Prince of Tides or the joy, joy luck club or like first beaches beaches. Exactly. Make it look like beaches, and then the second poster, make it look like a house of a thousand corpses. <laughs> and, you know, make the second poster, you know, look like fucking the beyond or whatever. And that's exactly what they did, man. Like, you look at the paperback. I'm so thankful that I didn't have that fucking paperback when I read that book because the punch, you, I mean... You put the fist in a velvet glove when you made that damn thing. When you re- when you see it and it doesn't. So wait, wait. Is, you know, is the paperback that gives it away, or, or was it was the hardback? You read the hardback and the, the hardback. Paper, the pa- I mean, you know damn well. If you look at the paperback edition, it looks like this rabid fucking craziness. And then if you look at the hardback book, it could have been some dude who realized that college wasn't for him. Like you have, there's, there's nothing that tells you about the level of ferocity and absolute visceral fucking scares that are in that book. From its oh, cover. I see it. I see it now. Now that I'm looking. Yeah. At the see what I'm talking about? Like it's when you put those two next to each other. If I was, if I was Christopher Buhlman. I would be tearing somebody in. I mean, I understand where, like, it's possible that they were like, okay, well, the hardback didn't sell as well as we hoped because we went, like, the route that you wanted us to, which is to say, like, the soft opening. we got to let them know what this is all about. They don't even know this is a horror novel. And he was just like, all right, I guess hand it to them, you know, spoon feed the fuck out of it, and that's exactly what it does. So then when you see the Suicide Motor Club, which, like, Right out of the gate, 
as soon as I saw that title, I'm like, yep. Like after I had, you know, after you, and I, and I think that's his power. You read that first, if you give that first book a chance, if you hear a title like the Suicide Motor Club in the second book or whatever uh, order it goes in, you're like, yep. Because you know, if it says Suicide Motor Club, the level that you're working with, once the first one doesn't give much away, and then the second one has that visceral sounding of a title, it's just going to be blood red. So I, I read Suicide Motor Club, um, I think at the beginning of last week. And um, that's a fan. It's a fantastic. I, I venture to say it's not quite as good as those across the river. But when it comes to sheer character. um I mean, when you're when you're when you're dealing with like cold-blooded killers, if you can make them seem like someone that you've known in your past, and it kind of makes you understand why they're doing what they're doing, but you still love to hate them, and you don't have they don't have any redeeming qualities, but you see someone that you've met before in that character, and then you realize right. that you've known that you've known somebody in your life that's that that character. I. I I find that a lot like whenever I've uh, worked a day job, like you guys are all just the same, you know, the characters in this, in this fucking book I'm reading. Oh yeah. And so, um, I think my, the only drawback to the suicide motor club that I have is that even though it isn't so far, it seems like it, he seems like he's screaming for a sequel. Oh, I see. It only came out in 2016, so it's not that old. And actually, there's another book that came out that he was winning awards for that has references to one of the characters in that book. So it's not quite a sequel or a prequel. It's just sort of like exists in the same world uh, where someone's telling stories about someone they knew. And it turns out to be someone in Suicide Motor Club. It's called The Lesser Dead. So um, I recommend Buhlman. Uh, just through what I've read. He's got another one called, I think it's called The Necromancer's House or something like that. And he's delving more into sort of like more of a sword and sorcery thing. Maybe getting into like his Renaissance roots. I, I do see the the lesser dead now. I'm adding that to my, my cue. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, uh, I don't think that you have to have read The Suicide Motor Club to read that. But it might give you a slight bit of context to someone they're referring to. Um, but the one I definitely didn't want to forget to mention is one that I, I was kind of doing, I was, because I'm looking to bring the diabolical index back and I was looking through the library, which is what I normally did when I was doing the episodes where I would just look around and see if something just sort of drew me, my attention yeah. in some sort of way on the stacks. And there was one called the owl killers by Karen Maitland. And it was one of those great. Occurrences where you go in and you look at kind of like the format of something and you're like, oh, man, I'm not going to like this. And so I the was so... Killers uh, by Karen Maitland? That's right. Okay, I'm adding that one to the list as well. 
Um, and this is another example also. They ended up doing a later cover in the paperback that's much more provocative uh, than the one that I got. And I'm a big proponent of horror that hides inside of fiction shelves where you'll go to some place that doesn't necessarily have a horror section. So they intersperse horror throughout just like the normal fiction section. And sometimes it can hide there because it doesn't say a horror novel or it's not called like blood and semen or whatever. You know? <laughs> like it, it's got a real, um, I got you know, it's got a real, it's got a name that is intriguing, but doesn't necessarily scream horror at you. So something about it kind of st struck me. And it kind of had that flavor of sort of like the Court of Owls, like in the Batman. Uh, yeah, yeah. It sort of gave me that impression by the cover and stuff. So I was like, oh, let's see what's up. And it's about this group called a Begin, which I'd heard the, the Cole Porter song, Begin in the Begin. And I didn't know what the hell it meant. Well, in this case, a Begin is a group of women who have a religious belief but not necessarily an affiliation. So it's almost like this strange, detached nunnery that doesn't follow the rules of any established uh, hierarchy. Huh. And they work for themselves, and they keep to themselves, and they... And they this is do, called what? It's called a begin. Oh, okay. B-E-G-U-I-N-E. And... Um, the story is about a begin that exists. Um, can't quite remember exactly. They may not even say where exactly in the world. I think they do, but I can't remember offhand where they're located. But the, in the village, the village does not like the begin. They don't trust them. They think they're witches. So there's like this prejudice, and it stems to the Catholic. Uh, I don't think he's a bishop. Can't remember what his title is, but he basically kind of like rails against these women. And there's also a sort of like mafia like presence in the town from like older times called the owl masters. And they wear owl masks and cloaks and they basically walk around and they do the bidding of the local, um, the local Lord, like the aristocracy. And there are God. Oh my God. There are like, fell demons that some of the people still recognize as power in the village from the old ways. And the way I'm describing this sounds like it's a fantasy novel. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds more like a fantasy novel to me. <laughs> but it really, it really isn't. It's grounded. It's so grounded. Like, it seems more like a, um, a medieval character study. But then every once in a while, you'll see someone doing some kind of a ritual and you'll see someone sort of like using the old ways. And there'll be like a woman up on the hill that they call like they call. I think they call them the, the clever women. I think it was the, uh, cunning, the cunning women. So like if you have like a gigantic wart on your face that's keeping you from breathing properly, you don't go to the surgeon. You go to the cunning woman and then she'll. She'll rub a flower on it under the, the full moon, and all of a sudden it'll go away. Um, <laughs> okay. But, yeah.
And like I was saying before, the cool part about it was when I went into it, I didn't think I was going to like it because it's written in multiple points of view throughout multiple chapters. But the cool thing I realized was, and this was also her debut, Karen Maitland as well. She's written a bunch of books that I want to read now that aren't affiliated with it, but I, but just her style, I, I want to read more. Um, but but the Owl cool Killers, book. this was her, was her debut book? As far as I know, yeah. But the coolest part about writing from different points of view like that, that I didn't recognize at first, is that if you're writing from point of view, the different perspective can act as a unreliable narrator. So sometimes someone's prejudice, when they're looking at something that's happened, it'll give you a false scent. So you might get a red herring that's just their own perspective. And then when you see it from someone else's perspective later, you realize that you were misled by their by the way they saw it. So it's a great uh, way of being an unreliable narrator without lying. I didn't see it coming. I ended up loving it. All right, cool. Next, next, this will be your final question. Okay. <laughs> this is the, this is the big kahuna guy. I, I saved this one for last and then we can discuss whatever we want from here. I know, I, I know instead of going with one, one question, one thing, we went with the whole theme tonight. <laughs> All right. What right, book you would most like to see turned into a movie or its own miniseries? Well, there are a bunch. But I'd have to say probably number one on my list is The Tomb by F. Paul Wilson. The Tomb. It is the debut. It's the debut of one of the greatest characters in horror fiction called Repairman Jack. And apparently, I don't know if I believe this or not, but he's been saying it since the 70s. Apparently, Stephen King is the president of the Repairman Jack fan club. You know what? We had a conversation about this once. I think it might have been that you had told me about Repairman Jack. Yeah, uh, and I I have to put a gigantic disclaimer out there. This is the way I see it. You may disagree, but this is the way it went down. F. Paul Wilson wrote The Tomb in the 70s and did not write another Repairman Jack novel until the 90s. People were screaming for it for decades because he had this, uh, what he called the adversary cycle, where he had a few different books and a few different genres all over the place in his career, but he was linking them all up and it had to do with the apocalypse. Well, so there's a, there's a 70s version of the tomb. In fact, it might be early 80s, but I, I thought for sure it was the late 70s. And then when he put out Legacies, which was the second book that came out in the 90s, he decided to revise, uh, I think they call it Lucasing, when you go back into one of your works, (laughs) you know, like George Lucas. Oh, (laughs) okay, I get it. You go back into one of your works, and then all, thank you. (laughs) And you see, and you go, hey, well, seeing as how I'm doing this later book, some of the stuff in the tomb is like out of sequence in time. So I'm, I'm going to revise the tomb to make it make more sense to legacies. And that burns the living fuck out of me when he, that he did that because it, it basically makes it, you change the initial book to fit the sequels instead of changing the sequels to fit the initial book. 
And as far as I'm concerned, read the 70s version of the tomb. It can totally be a standalone thing. And either read the 70s tomb and just have it in your head and then read the sequels, even though they're taking place now. Just think of Repairman Jack as like aging differently than other people. It's kind of like a uh, a James Bond kind of thing, you know. It's like it's never quite explained, right. I mean, I but it doesn't good, need to be. That's a good way of doing it. That's a good way of doing that. Um, that's a good way of thinking about it. But as far as I'm concerned, the original tomb is the only way to read it, and it's difficult to to find sometimes. You have to look for the yellow and green cover uh, that looks like this crazy. In fact, it's really difficult to make out what the hell it is. But it's yellow and green, and it sort of like it sort of looks like a um, some old kind of catacomb-looking building, or like a building that has catacombs under it, or something like that. Uh, and then in the further, like in the kind of like revised '90s versions, they basically just use Repairman Jack's silhouette as like a, a themic thing to like have all the covers look. Yeah, I noticed modern. that most of them kind of look like. Uh... Cities on fire with him kind of in the center, like all James Bond like. And not that I not it's it's not that I dislike the sequels. I just think that the first one. I has, see the version of the tomb you're talking about. It almost looks like a weird Castle Grayskull kind of cover. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, exactly. A and little bit, not a little, a little, little different, but yeah. I would. Uh, are we? Yeah, I mean exactly as in like that's the tone that it has, um, but. Yeah, they've been trying to make that fucking thing for decades into a film. But it just so happens that Paul Wilson's like, you're not doing this shit unless it's perfect. So he's had his his fingers in it for a long time, and they can't quite seem to get it going. Um, And I'm shit scared that they're going to do some kind of streaming thing that's just going to bare bones the hell out of it. I would kind of like them see. I'd like to see them do what they were talking about doing with the Dark Tower, which is have like yeah. an initial, like an, an epic initial film, and then have like a a concurrent or the film comes out, and then later on a series comes on. Gets a well, lot. They of, did. Uh, they, that's what I thought you were talking about was the series, because the they did have a series that they I think they filmed the pilot for, but it never like series never went to order at Amazon. I was under the impression the way they were going to do it was a big movie and then a bunch of like world building in a show. And then they were going to do another film. And then the second season would build more story. And then the third film. And then like they would use the show to kind of like carry the load of the world building. And then they would have like the epic beats done in movie form instead. Oh, okay. Which I see, I think I see what you're saying. Perfect. That would have been a great way of doing the Dark Tower series. Uh, and I think that if they did that with the tomb, the tomb itself would have to be the initial movie. And then because of how episodic the sequels were, 
just make that the series and then put the series on TV or on the streaming. Because the sequels are very episodic and the first book could stand alone without anything else happening. So fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, the one uh, book uh, that's based on a movie that I, I feel like I can recommend, and I'm sure you probably read it. I'm going to assume that you have, but The Ruins by Scott Smith. Oh, man. Fuck. Yeah, I, I was going to bring that up. Um, and I actually, uh, I had spoken to some guys who have horror podcasts about having like a dual thing where, you know, Diabolical Index would talk about the book half and then their show would talk about the movie half. But I'm glad you brought that up because I could be down for something like that. Yeah. If you ever want to do it, man, we can do it because everybody talks about it. They never follow through. I'm totally down to do it because I think that the ruins is another, is another book where even in they, they kept the same form in the paperback as they did in the hardback. So when you're looking at it, it doesn't really give you a jolt of what's about to happen. So when you read The Ruins, good God, man, what a great fucking book. And then the movie is such a, the movie is kind of like, I think the movie very safe, made, it's a really safe version of the book. But I do think that the book and uh, afterwards the movie has a real flavor of what, um, number one, the 70s used to do with movies, like horror films, when it comes to like, this slightly environmental thing where, you know, I can't remember what the name of it was. I think it was a night gallery episode. I think so. Uh, where like someone had been like a pesticide magnate or something. Then they retire and go back to their home and these vines start growing all over their house. So the seventies had a, um, had a big thing where it would be a real unassuming thing like if you look around at like 70s books there are books called like the plants there are books called like you know bloom of evil where this really unassuming stuff would be the downfall of people and i think it was a real 70s flavor that the happening totally missed i think that if the happening would have taken cues from the ruins it would have been a much better movie but um like you said with kind of like the safe approach to the film. Yeah, it's like a real took... cold and anesthetized version of it because the movie is not per se bad, but it's definitely not a faithful adaptation and it, it, it admits so much about the actual ruins itself. I mean, it... I think it took some risks. Um, I, I was kind of surprised at uh, how far they went with some of the um, some of the effects and how um, how gruesome and ended up being uh it looked painful it was painful to watch yeah so and yeah, especially and it, was like, it, it, um, was a, it was a good movie just not a great movie i don't want to say a whole lot about it in case anyone wants to watch it but um i thought it was so chilling when they uh when they initially try to kind of like step away and then they realize they're not going anywhere yeah they're not going to be allowed to leave right exactly like i I would have loved to seen I could I can't help it when I read the uh, the book and when I watched the film all I could think of was man this should have been a movie in the 70s it has had that flavor for me where you know 
we're encroaching on shit that we don't. And it had like a real sweaty, gritty thing happening. So I would say that, you know, like you said, the ruins as a movie, it kind of barely scrapes the surface, gives you the idea. I almost think that the ruins movie would make a great book trailer for the book. If you were <laughs> to have the inkling to read the book after that, the movie would have been enough to kind of like get your appetite to appetize you to read the book and get so much more out of it. Because that's also something I get in a lot of arguments with people about, like if there's a movie made of something that you're going to read, always watch the movie first, whatever you do. Because oh, yeah. in my estimation, the movie uh, contracts the book and the book enlarges the movie. So if you watch the movie first, you're going to have a face to put to the stuff, the people in the book. You're going to see, you might see changes in the book, uh, but whatever it's going to do, it's going to enlarge whatever you saw in the film. Yeah, so it's not going to be, you know. A movie has only got an hour and a half, roughly, to give you all those ideas, but although a book takes, you know, dozens and dozens of hours, if you're like me. You know, to ingest it, you know, if you go from the movie to the book, you're just, like you said, you're just expanding that world and you're making it more complex. When you, if you go from the book to the movie, you know, you're going to see a watered down, edited version of it because let's face it, everybody's tried m- making the stand, but you know, when you take a thousand plus page book and try to cut it down to even you know a mini series like they've done, <laughs> you know, you're, you're cutting the meat and potatoes out right out of it. I wish I knew why Stephen King keeps going to CBS for that shit. I don't know. It's like, man, if you're going to, what are you doing? Like, I don't know if they've got a lot more money to fling his, his direction as if he needed more, but it's like, man, go to fucking Hulu or like someplace where you can flex because how far can you possibly go? uh, Wasn't under the dome through Hulu. Or was that Fox? Uh, I, I thought that it may be a move from one to the other. I thought it started in one and ended up at the other one. I thought Hulu was kind of like the, the kind of like the clearinghouse for a lot of stuff for a while there. Um, but how on earth could you possibly make the stand when you're limited to what you're allowed to do like that? I didn't even bother with that because I mean, I kind of dug the original TV one, but even that is like a travesty. So it's just. Yeah, doing? I didn't watch. I didn't uh, watch the new one. I watched the old one, and to uh, be quite honest, I, I uh, while I liked liked it again, I didn't love it. It just it, it's very limited by what they could do, especially in the nineties. It just uh, it it feels made for TV. I mean, you know, I, I want to see a show. Not? I want to see a show that feels more like a movie to me than than, than it does, you know. A TV show, it's very much like this breathes made for TV. I mean, if you're going to walk up and go, hey, um, HBO, you need a palate cleanser after that Game of Thrones ending? 
let's do the stand together. Like, that makes perfect sense to me. Why wouldn't you go to somebody like that and be like, we've never done this justice. It's fucking huge. It can't be a movie. We got to do this long form on HBO. Or I don't, for some reason, I'm not thinking Netflix. For some reason, HBO or Showtime seems like the place for that type of thing. I'm interested in the Chapelweight series um, only because I know that it's going to run fast and loose with the Jerusalem's Lot story. Um, so That's the one with man. Adrian Brody, right? Yeah. Okay, I have, I've seen the trailers for that. Jerusalem's Lot, did you read that story? Yes. Yeah, I think that was the closest he ever came to a flat-out Lovecraftian story. So it'd be, I would be interested to see how they uh, work that in that uh, in that show. I I had a thing for back in the days, like for large daunting books, and I would just like, yeah, I want to chew on the one the fucking that's got thirteen hundred pages, because you know I like to torture myself. <laughs> well, I think at some point it's almost like a mountain that you have to climb, but. I think with the stand, by comparison from what I've heard, I've heard that the stand drags much more than Swan Song does. Oh, but much more. hard to say. I don't know. And, you know, I think that in some places you kind of have to realize where McCammon's writing from. Sometimes people will pick up a book and go, oh, man, this is so 90s. Like Poppy Z. Bright, for instance. Uh, when you pick up her stuff, it's like as 90s as 90s. Or... I guess you could say late 80s, early 90s, as you can get. Um, so, but now, I mean, hell, dude, there's all kinds of 90s staples that are coming back. I saw someone in Jinko jeans the other day. So, any anything will come oh, back. No. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the yeah. funny that you mentioned Poppy Z. Bright, I, I read a couple of uh, their novels. Only a couple. I remember reading Lost Souls and Exquisite Corpse, and I want to say that one of the uh, the crows. Uh, I think there was a like drawing blood. That may have been a continuation of Lost Souls, but um, it might have I, been drawing blood. Yeah, you never know. Um, oh, uh, one more thing before you go. There yes. is another. There is another book that I would like to see attempted. I'm not so sure it's got enough meat for an entire movie, or maybe it's like if you were to have an anthology, because I mean, a lot of these anthology series streaming and stuff, when you're, um, when your episode length is something like 110 or uh, not 110, like a hundred and, um, or like a 70, 80, 90 minutes long, sometimes you can get an entire book or like a short story in that time. So one of those that I would recommend would be The Cypher by Cafe Koja. Right, I feel like I've heard of that one. I've... Man, I it is feel so... like, like no, nah, we got to look it up. Got to cheat and look it up. It is a uh, very simple premise that has a lot of crazy implications. And uh, it, could, it takes place... As far as I know, if I'm, as far as I can remember, 
It takes place in one building. It's very, it's got a very limited amount of characters, but the, the relatability to like a couple living in a apartment building and obsession addiction to something other than drugs and having like a, uh, an unexplainable phenomena. It's just, it's so simple and she's still going strong. She's, you know what? Yeah. Bad brains. I've read it. Bad brains. Also great. Bad brains, strange angels, the cipher. Um, all of a sudden she switched to children's books after a time. I see that here. Yeah. Young adult section. And now she's doing, uh, she's doing art installations. So, She's still going strong. And I recommend Skin as well. That is like, that's like the early 90s industrial wave, like, personified. You can practically hear the Nine Inch Nails as you flip the page. Oh, absolutely. Like, ministry, like, in your ear, flat out. Al Jorgensen's jamming out in the corner. Yep. (laughs) So. Well, that being said, I think we can put a pin in this one for the evening. I think we got plenty that we can go off of. We we could st- still there's at least eight or nine different books or different uh, things that I wanted to touch base on that I'm just gonna have to save for another time because I'm thinking I'm in the end of my rope. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. If you want to revisit those questions, I would love to do it. Or if you if you would like to do it in more of a um, maybe like an article form, we could do that too. If you don't want to do another part audio wise yeah maybe we do the the second part as a you know we did it as an audio show why not just uh, do it in print format yeah maybe do it's, like the part essay the uh, yeah there you go that'll be fun yeah well it's been fun man i felt a little rusty i hadn't done one of the, these in a long time well i'd have to say that uh you knew what you were getting into when you brought this up yeah yep. <laughs> that's why a couple of the questions were kind of loaded <laughs> yeah I, I i hope everyone doesn't feel cheated because um if ever without being prepared i was prepared it would have been this topic for sure even uh, if I, I that was going on that this was one where i had enough in my brain to 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 uh to get going on this topic for sure <laughs> Yeah, man, and uh, anytime you know, you know. When have I ever refused you? So, like, anytime. Well, it's, it's kind of hard with these magnificent sideburns, I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> I would be lying if I, you know, if, if I said any different. All right, right. All right, folks. Well, we've been going on long enough. We've, we've been silly long enough. I'm going to call this an end of the evening. Uh, this is the end of uh, episode two of Without Warning. So keep back tuning back in for more we got more crazy topics more you know uh things that i think will uh stumble Corey here i will attempt to the next time uh, I'll, I'll pick a subgenre or something that uh will turn you on your ear 
There, now you're talking. Hurt right me, on. baby. Hurt me. <laughs> Hurt you one more time. Right on. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in. And as always, thanks for listening. Robert R. McCammon didn't come up tonight. If I were to have... Oh, um, Swan Song, man. Favorite book by him. If I was to say... Because we were talking about, like, number one book I'd like to see made. I would say, instead of, like, number one book I'd like to see made, number one author I would like to see exhibited in TV or book or in movie form would be Robert R. McCammon. That guy has consistently written some of the best shit in, in the horror genre. For some reason, I have no idea why. He was relegated to, like, this fourth position redheaded stepchild thing when it comes to, like, you know, you look at the biggies. When you go to half-price books and you go to the horror section, it's like a little bit of Lovecraft, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Gigantic swath of King. Gigantic swath of Coons. And then you have this Sort of like shelf of Straub, maybe, maybe. And then you have to like look under the fucking floor pegs for goddamn Robert R. McCammon. Even though um, when you look at his stuff, they were even trying to brand him by his name like that it was Stephen King, where you'd have that like over, it was like a almost like the logo of a comic book, except it was Stephen King's name. And they were doing that with Robert R. McCammon. It blows my mind that they haven't made any of his books in the films yet. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.